when I left Lebanon right after the famous July 2006 war with Israel, I left Lebanon with only one purpose, that is never to come back. But uh, when I went to, to that school, uh, I learned a couple of things, but one of them was that um, the conflicts that we are the most prepared and ready and knowledgeable to address and work on are our own. Mm -hmm. And this is when I realized that, yes, well, I can always travel the world and try to save the world, but it's my own world, it's my own space that I need to learn to save first and to work on. So I came back empowered mm -hmm. and uh, feeling a certain agency and certain ownership and responsibility. That's Jean-Paul Chami. He started an organization called Peace Labs in Lebanon. They aim to facilitate difficult conversations that need to happen if communities are to move forward from conflict. So this is quite a dramatic contrast with episode 12 a few weeks ago. That was with a former fighter during the Lebanese Civil War who had to come to grips with his personal history and how to move forward in a constructive way. But Jean-Paul is of the generation that was fundamentally shaped by that war and had no responsibility for it. So in his words, when he left the country in 2006, he never wanted to come back. But he found a sense of agency and a sense of possibility. He did come back and he started Peace Labs. So this is really a conversation about that personal journey. Why he went abroad to focus on international relations and peace studies, and then came back to focus on his own space. What it takes at a personal level to engage directly with some of the toughest issues in communities with which he is directly connected. Why he started a new organization, a new way of doing things, given the risks, the uncertainties, and the costs of that. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. Has been one of the most complicated questions ever. <laughs> Uh, because um, when I, if I try to say that I'm a peace builder, this is confusing because um, most reactions to this would be peace builder. What is that? And peace in the land of wars and conflict. This is confusing. And even some people would even say peace in our country here. No, there must be something wrong with you, son. And usually it triggers most people to share certain negative sentiments and uh, not so positive, um, you know, recollections mm -hmm. of their understanding of peace and what they've been through uh, during the times of war in uh, in, in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I ended up eventually customizing my own uh, answer uh, depending on the person. So I would say sometimes a social worker. And sometimes I would say that I work for the UN. Again, it depends on the person. Mm -hmm. um, I would eventually try and do that. But then sometimes I do it on purpose, just to mention the word peace and conflict and see what people think about that. And surprisingly, there are it seems that there are very few comparable uh, you know, professions, vocations mm -hmm. that people can, can name. One quick story is that at, with one particular person who got very interested in what I do but had no clue what it was about. So he kept asking and asking. And then by the end of the, of the conversation, he said, okay, Jean-Paul, I think now I know what you are, what you do. And I said, yeah, great. So who am I? What do I do? He said, you're a priest. And I told him, no, I'm not a priest. He said, no, 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 you're a priest. Everything you said, you spoke about, is what in my mind, uh, you know, done by a priest listening to people, working with them to address their conflicts, uh, being compassionate, empathizing, and, you know, never getting yourself, you know, uh, into the actual conflict, always trying to catalyze things and trying not to aggravate the situation, mm. not to do any harm, and so on. So uh, this got me really thinking a lot mm. about that, because I'm not a priest, but uh, at least for that particular person, that was the closest uh, profession he could, you know, uh, relate what I did to. That's <laughs> it's quite a, a challenging. So I'm not a priest. I think this. You know what? I'm, not I'm gonna, this is going to be the title of my new article. I'm not a priest, which will irritate, I think, a lot of priests. No, that's priests. Interesting. <laughs> that's interesting because I, I would find that um, quite a challenging analogy. I think I don't know exactly why, 
But I, if someone said that to me, I would have to stop and think about it mm-hmm. and examine why I found it. I still am. <laughs> I still am. <laughs> this, is a, this is an ongoing process. So where, where has that taken you geographically? Uh, obviously within Lebanon, but you've worked internationally a bit mm-hmm. as well. Uh, well, I mean, within Lebanon, most of my work um, was concentrated and still is concentrated in the north of Lebanon. That's mm-hmm. the city of Tripoli and its different neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, the two known neighborhoods of Jabal Mohsen and Babat Tibbani, these are the two most known ones. Um, the, the Alawite uh, Jabal Mohsen and the Sunni uh, Babat Tibbani. Uh, conflict is is very well you know known and discussed and the rounds of violence only ended uh, three or four years ago and in my work I also uh, invested a good amount of time uh, conducting uh, work and implementing projects in Akkar that's even north mm-hmm. north of Tripoli and in the Palestinian Badawi camp mm-hmm. north of Tripoli as well and in a, a region that is east of Tripoli that is called uh, Donnie. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, my work also took me to, to other places. I did some work in Iraq, mm-hmm. uh, in Libya, and uh, a little bit of, uh, of short-term assignments, uh, whether in DRC, in Guatemala, in Mali. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but mainly, uh, I would say that my work in Libya and in, and in Iraq, I think this is the, the type of assignments that I was able to dedicate a good amount of time to at least develop an initial understanding so how do you get into this space in the first place? Because the, if the reaction often is, I'm not sure what that is, can you define what that means, are you a priest? Uh, how do you initially come to do something that is not on a lot of people's radar? Well, um, well is, this a genera- is it a generational thing or what do you think? I don't think it's a generational thing per se. I just think that um, we all, you know, decide to go for a line of work or for a vocation or a profession. I think depending on many factors, most of them are outside of our own control. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my own case, because I did spend a little bit of time trying to also figure out why and what got me into this, uh, my current answer is that the first reason that got me into this was having uh, experienced several rounds of the Lebanese civil war. Mm-hmm. I was born in 78. That's uh, three years into the civil war. It was uh, one of the toughest years, it seems, as I was told by my parents who had to flee north of Tripoli mm-hmm. because of you know all the massacres and all the fighting and, and all, the, all the trouble. Um, but then I think at some point at the age of 10, I think I got a bit conscious about certain things that a 10-year-old boy shouldn't be mm. conscious about. Things such as life and death, things such as would I wake up in the morning and I would look around and my folks would have left or died. Things such as, such as why is that soldier who is firing at us uh, remotely from 20 or 30 kilometers, uh, why is this guy trying to kill us? We don't know him. And I'm sure that my parents are good people, so mm-hmm. they couldn't have tried to harm him or his family. So, you know, those big existentialist questions that a 10-year-old boy shouldn't normally be exposed to. Um, and I, and ever since, I developed an interest in trying to do something about that. I didn't know that it was about this. I mean, that's wars and conflicts. I knew that I felt that I wanted to do something good for humanity. Um, later on, I went to study. Went on to study business, and um, mm-hmm. and I thought that I'm just going to keep on doing that and work at a bank or something. And when I was looking for a master's degree in business, I stumbled on a uh, international relations master's program at the Lebanese American University in Beirut. Mm-hmm. And this is that was the aha moment at the age of 22. Mm-hmm. That's almost 20, 12 years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, uh, I know, I knew back then that this is what I wanted to do because it involved issues related to humans. I wasn't really interested in issues related purely to money and maximizing, you know, somebody's wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went for that, and while studying it, I was also introduced to something that was called international conflict resolution. Conflict resolution wars. I never knew that people studied these things. 
And that got me very curious, very interested. So I researched a little bit and uh, eventually decided to go for another master's in peace and conflict studies, which I didn't do immediately. I worked in Kuwait for a couple of years teaching business courses Mm -hmm. to Kuwaiti women, fully veiled Kuwaiti women, Mm -hmm. who eventually ended up teaching me a lot Mm -hmm. about, you know, their world and, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe some... Uh, key, I would say, elements of Islam and you know mm-hmm. living in a in a purely Muslim Muslim country. But then I went later on to do my masters in peace and conflict studies um, at the European Peace University in Austria. Mm-hmm. It was a program that was started by uh, the known Johann Galtung, and there was the, an amazing collection of I think a very inspiring people. Uh, Marshall Rosenberg, the late Marshall Rosenberg, was w- mm-hmm. one of those who who taught there, in addition to many many others. Um, I think uh, this is when I found my tribe uh, and uh, I connected to people, whether it's students or teachers, who were all into the business of let's try the, to make the world a better place mm-hmm. and let's try to know why, how and why and what are the reasons and what is it that we could potentially do. So that, that inspired me a lot. And even though back in 2006, when I left Lebanon, right after the famous July 2006 war with Israel, I left Lebanon with only one purpose, that is never to come back. But uh, when I went to to that school, uh, I learned a couple of things. But one of them was that um, the conflicts that we are the most prepared and ready and knowledgeable to address and work on are our own. Mm -hmm. And this is when I realized that Yes, well, I can always travel the world and try to save the world, but it's my own world, it's my own space that I need to learn to save first and to work on. So I came back empowered mm-hmm. and uh, feeling a certain agency and certain ownership and responsibility. And ever since I've been doing uh, most of my uh, field work in Lebanon, while also zooming out every now and then and visiting other conflicting areas and learning from that uh, again. The phrase never to come back uh, is interesting. What, what was in your mind at that time? Um, get, me, get, get me out get of here. <laughs> get me out of here, please. <laughs> Help. <laughs> was it, was it a, the sense that you didn't have um, potential agency in changing that, that it was too difficult, that it was uh, too difficult to live sort of on a, at a, a day-to-day level? Uh, I mean, what what shifted in the space of, I mean, what, one year? Mm, uh, one or two years. One or two years to, to change that. Uh, well, I think um, the, the major disappointment that I felt was triggered by that war, that 33-day war that happened in July. I came back to Lebanon and uh, joined uh, World Vision for a, a bit of an internship or a small experience. And I also uh, joined what was called the Summer School on Conflict Prevention, Mm -hmm. which was run by the Lebanese American University's Institute for Peace and Justice Mm -hmm. at LAU Biblos in Jbeil. Mm -hmm. And uh, so so two days after I came back to Lebanon, I went uh, to Biblos to meet those people, the organizers of that summer school, and and they asked me to support in the organization. I was so thrilled because I took part in Mm -hmm. the, the original first... Uh, edition in 2004 uh, I was so so happy and like very very proud um, so uh, we sat uh, to discuss things I think there was an American facilitator who was brought in, in, into Lebanon to you know organize and facilitate mm-hmm. and then we spoke for a couple of hours and uh, while having lunch there was a big commotion and people saying there's something on the news guys what's wrong what's happening and then the news was that two uh, Israeli soldiers were I think by then they were saying that they were kidnapped by Hezbollah Mm -hmm. and uh, he immediately said okay problems I need to contact my embassy Mm -hmm. which he did and he was informed that he may need to consider being evacuated as soon as possible they probably you know, were alerted that something's going to escalate, you know, quickly. Yeah. And uh, and that was, yeah, I don't even remember his name because, you know, uh, we never followed up and I never saw him. Um, so, uh, and then the war started and I think this is it. I think it was a pileup of many, many conflicts, many wars, many disappointments. And then I felt, khalas, in our language, that means enough, basta, right? Yes. Enough. So, so this is it. And then I was so... Furious because you know when I when I went to Kuwait I mm-hmm. saved up a certain amount of money mm-hmm. 
And that was, I mean, and I was about to invest all of that money. Actually, I paid most of it, uh, you know, for the tuition for that university. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in July, I mean, I was supposed to be traveling in September. So the airport closed and we never knew if the war was about to stop or it could have continued for dragged for two or three years or more. Mm -hmm. So, and I felt that, oh no, like, you know, this, that, that was... A bit of a, you know, once in a lifetime kind of chance that, mm -hmm. you know, I have that exact amount of money. I have access to this really great institution. I'm about to do something great for humanity and then yep. I'm stuck. So I think that sense of being frustrated and disappointed eventually fueled that additional mm -hmm. feeling within me that said that, خلص. Mm -hmm. Once, if you manage to get out of here, you will do your best not to come back. Mm -hmm. But I did come back. Did. What changed? Um, again, I think uh, what I was exposed to. Uh, number one is the community. Mm -hmm. That in that university, I think the program was really great. Maybe academically not as rigorous as in you know, in comparison to other mm -hmm. uh, universities. But in terms of the community of learners, they did a lot of work trying to create that. Mm -hmm. They understood that most people who would pursue peace and conflict studies are people who have been struggling with something. It doesn't have to only be wars. We all have conflicts that disorient us somehow. Uh, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and we need to work on. And there's no way to work on a conflict unless you get to a stage or a place where you can unpack and unpack and unpack feelings, emotions, knowledge, events, and try to eventually sort all this out and try to make some sense out of it. Mm -hmm. If you don't make some sense out of it, it's a constant thunderstorm within us that will never leave us and will mostly fuel negative sentiments and this mm -hmm. self-destructions. Self so those people, amazing collection of people from all over the world, mm -hmm. uh, you got people who were victims of war, victims of domestic violence, maybe victims of, I don't know, an educational system somewhere. That's mm -hmm. probably the case of all of us, I guess. Um, no, nobody is that immune from, from that, it seems. Um, somebody who may have been a child soldier mm -hmm. in, a, in a country. So then I started realizing that, wait, Jean-Paul, wait a second. So your, your conflicts, your problems, your traumas, your issues are not as important as you thought they were. I mean, they are important, but they're not the most important mm -hmm. that... that that they are, that there are. And, um, and I think this is, that was a bit of a humbling experience. Mm. But then at the same time, when I spoke about my conflicts, people listened. Mm. When I presented about the war in 2006, which, which was very fresh and people were very interested in, people listened, people empathized, and people cried. Mm. And I think this is what got me feeling human again, valuable again seen, heard, respected and, uh, and those people were able to really empathize because they've been through something like that so, uh, so this empowered me again and made me believe uh, in myself, in the cause and it gave me that agency I'm not a victim anymore and I think this is exactly what happened hmm. I stopped being a victim and I realize that I can be a hero I can, I can do something I'm a, you know, hero could have many different meanings but at least I can have an agency and bring back the H in hero that is hope, mm -hmm. which is the key ingredient that gets uh, you know, destroyed and lost whenever there's war or a big conflict or, mm -hmm. or, a, big, or a big problem and I also um, acquired a couple of skills Hmm. that I was able to bring back to Lebanon. So it wasn't just only information, not only me feeling uh, heard and emotion, you know, having my emotional wounds mended somehow. I also uh, came back with a couple of skills. I realized that I'm not a bad teacher slash trainer. Actually, I realized I'm really quite good at this mm -hmm. and I could do it and ha have a lot of fun, get inspired and inspire others. So I came back to Lebanon with a couple of tricks in my toolbox, um, mainly working and engaging youth on peace and conflict-related issues. And that was, I think, my, my starting point when I started in Lebanon, and then I moved to doing other things uh, ever since. So you have the, uh, the internal peace, let's say, which I agree is absolutely foundational. 
when you come back in the country and you have to sort of plug into a organizational setting that right? you have to find somewhere to park your your tools and uh, and do your work right and in the early days uh, was it world vision you said it was a mix of stuff no well basically world vision it was a that was a short thing yeah I kind of volunteered and and sticked around because we had the war so yeah. I, I stayed actually but mm. uh, no when I came back to Lebanon um, basically it was uh, through a local organization called Forum for Development Culture and Dialogue mm-hmm. that uh, actually gave me I think my very first real piece building related experience. It was a peace building program in Iraq, a capacity building for Iraqi civil society on conflict resolution and advocacy. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, hired as a as project manager and then later on as program manager, worked with them for two years. Mm-hmm. And uh, this helped me also um, develop coordination, management and administrative related skills mm-hmm. and also made me realize that Yes, I may have a vision and some skills and so on, but eventually 60 or 70% of the success of any peace-related journey has to be supported with operations. And, um, and, and those operations need to be managed and, and conducted, I think, in a, in a, in a peaceable fashion, in a, in a way that also promotes, mirrors, reflects mm-hmm. the same values, the same stances, the same beliefs and uh, you know, so on that that are that we're trying to promote. So mm-hmm. they're not something else. So this is, I think, what also helped me uh, uh, develop my, I mean, my early uh, skills in in managing uh, projects, managing money, working with people, managing team, hiring, mm-hmm. and and also working in a different context. That is. Uh, basically the Iraqi context which also I got the chance to realize that there's a lot of similarities as we also ran a very interesting program back then that was an Iraqi Lebanese youth, yearly youth camp Mm -hmm. young uh, Iraqis would be travel from Iraq into Lebanon, meet with, uh, you know, youngsters their age, engage and discuss things. And I do remember that at some point, I think one of the most revealing moments for me was that um, I was conducting this small exercise. I told them, listen, imagine that there's this uh, invisible spectrum or line going from I fully disagree to I fully agree, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of an exercise that uh, that is called uh, wh- where do I stand? Mm-hmm. And then I told them, listen, I want you to consider some statements and then position yourselves on that uh, fictitious line. And then I told them, okay, first one, uh, the Lebanese conflict is, uh, you know, th- there's no way out of it, right? It's, it's, a, there's, it's, to- it's a total impossibility mm-hmm. to have it addressed. And so. so the Lebanese uh, strongly agreed, while the Iraqis either went to disagreeing or being on the, you know, in the center. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was interesting. And then I told them, okay, the Iraqi conflict, right? mm-hmm. same procedure. Mm-hmm. And then they swapped places, of course. All right, and that was really something. That, yeah. Well, we always tend to think that Those other people's young conflict, kids or no, sort they're, of adolescents? they're eighteen to twenty-five. Okay. They're not that innocent. They've seen enough, yeah. right? So that was, I think, revealing for me, and that kind of reinforced uh, the same idea that I had that uh, I used to think that uh, my issues, my conflict, my country. Mm. Uh, is the most pro- problematic one ever, but then no, it turns out not to be the case. There are equally valid and important, maybe more important conflicts out there as well. That's interesting, and and I've observed something similar, I think, in, in sort of very different conflicts elsewhere in the world. But from your point of view, then, it sounds like the international experience. Uh, was useful in terms not just of specific sort of skills, but also just that uh, sense of the range of possibilities or some sort of external perspective on the situation here. Do you think that was uh, particularly formative for you in in that way? Is that something that uh, should be... Is particularly useful or valuable, I guess, for people who are growing up in a system to see it from the outside. Absolutely, yes. Okay. It's, I think, extremely, it's extremely empowering yeah. to have the privilege to zoom out 
and see your world from outside. Mm. This is why I think uh, in, in our language we always say that uh, traveling is, uh, you know, as a as a master teacher in a way, mm. or a, you know, a, a professor, because it teaches us a lot about things as we physically zoom out and suddenly we're able to look back at our own world, maybe with you know less bias and uh, you know objectivity. Mm. So so yes, definitely. I think another element is the the comparison. Because once we start, you know, understanding a little bit or connecting to a different context, we start figuring out differences. And in most cases, when it comes to conflict, there are way more similarities than differences. Mm. Um, and I think this is in itself very, very empowering to start realizing that, okay, well, I'm not, you know, uh, awkward. I'm not, you know... Um, uh, I or my country were not in a situation that is unheard of or that strange. And I think this helps us get rid of the, uh, that element of, uh, of shame, maybe that stigma, perhaps mm. that we usually feel when we are, we undergo a certain traumatic, mm. uh, event that we start feeling somehow filthy, right? Mm. But then once we realize that others have been through this and Though not not a nice human experience, but it's a it's a valid one that others have been through. Then we start realizing that okay, then I'm not in um, in a too complex situation, or I'm not into something too special. Mm. So it's okay. I think this somehow brings us back to maybe a healthier level of realism that helps us potentially move forward if not then we would be blocking every single attempt to try to uh, address mm. or mend or work on that particular situation so at least it it breaks that level that is usually that resilience to hearing out other stories and connecting and trying to get inspired and trying to do something about it I think so uh, let's call it the threshold of uh, of hopelessness or something like mm. that or hope somehow did I just coin a new theory sure yes maybe I just did trademark that yes Take, done <laughs> I will um, get this published <laughs> up for you the, it, that's an interesting it's, in a way it's a counterintuitive um, uh, suggestion for someone who's been in the field in a while because we colleagues of mine and myself sort of say until a we're blue in the face that every conflict has its own specificities. You can't get off the plane with sort of your theory of how things work. You have to understand the, the social psychology and the history, you know, maybe back centuries and so on. And I like very, I very firmly believe all those things are important. Um, so it's interestingly provocative, I'll say, to <laughs> say that there are a lot more similarities than there are differences. Um, I hear the truth in what you're saying but if you just put that on the table at sort of a conference of people doing conflict analysis they would well sort of right they would sort of lynch uh, <laughs> they would sort of kick you out or if you're leading a seminar on this um, yeah can you elaborate on that a little further in terms of what the similarities are that uh, that you've observed I strongly think that uh, conflicts have a lot of similarities and way more similarities than, than differences. Mm -hmm. in, in, what, in what sense? When you break down a conflict to its different elements and different driving forces, different maybe causes and the dynamics between those causes and so on, you start realizing that they are the same. Um, there's always elements of history. There's always values clashing. Mm -hmm. There's always, uh, you know, what we want is more important than what you want, or what we what we want for you is better for you. Mm -hmm. There's lack of communication. There's power play. There's, uh, you know, and most importantly, there's the most beautiful elements that causes conflicts and nobody attacks nor tackles for some very awkward reason. There's that invisible hand, not Adam Smith, not, not that one necessarily, or maybe that one as well, because when, when we structure ourselves in a certain way, through laws, regulations, procedures, contracts, and so on, we start acting according to those sets of rules and regulations. 
and we almost never question them. And in my country, we've only questioned them a couple of times, but that was post big rounds of violence. Um, that was when we tried to re-look re into the constitution and into some of the laws and try to to redistribute the powers amongst the different confessions and so on. Mm -hmm. But we didn't really necessarily change or try or, or have an attempt mm -hmm. to change the actual system, to, to break it up and then to, to do something about it. And uh, which is sad because I think, I generally think that the culprit number one, when it comes to world violence and world uh, harm, is the international system, mm -hmm. um, not in its entirety. I'm not saying that the whole the whole of it is wrong, but big chunks, big pieces of it are causing those twenty twenty five thousand kids to die every day because of preventable, you know, mm -hmm. diseases and the lack because of the lack of access to uh, you know drinkable water. Um, so in in that respect, the ingredients of all of those conflicts are the same, but. If you bring same ingredients for a cake, the way we cook them will eventually lead to a different taste or a different type of cake, right? Mm -hmm. The more butter we add or the less, you know, the more sugar, the different type of wheat perhaps, but still eventually the ingredients are the same, but then the heat level is different, the, you know, the recipient or the, the pot that we're using could eventually and will eventually make a very big difference and the cooking time and the likes and dislikes of the uh, the customers so on and so forth so yes in terms of the actual interactions of those different ingredients this leads to a different scene a different uh, uh, maybe episode perhaps but then I do I still do think that whenever I look at conflicts I easily relate to to it uh, even though sometimes instead of having, let's say, the confessional or sectarian component, you have something else, but then it's still the same, but it's under a different tag. Mm. And uh, well, maybe one last thing that I've observed is that in every single conflict, there's this very funny person, it's not really usually one person, but anyways, that likes to tag things, right? Etiquette in French. They like to put a small etiquette, a small tag, on things and in order to say well it was you know a race-based clash mm -hmm. oh no no it was sectarian wait a minute it was clergy versus other and then eventually when we look into this it's usually resources related matters and the politics of having you know more access mm -hmm. and uh, you know and and a higher level of control and, and power so uh, I'm not an etiquette I mean, I kind of guy. Kind of guy, right? <laughs> yes. Um, so you spent a couple of years in a, a not a huge international organization, but an organizational setting. And then you decided, this is what, 2011, that you would start your own thing. Um, very risky, very difficult. You have to do a lot of different things. You have to wear a lot of different hats. Anyone who's run a small organization or started one and grown it knows how difficult and how risky this is. So what drove that step? And we're talking about, uh, I guess I should introduce what the organization is. Peace Labs is the name. Um, but I'm interested in what drove you to start a different kind of initiative or organizational uh, approach? Uh, the main reason behind it was that, first of all, I got to work for a UN agency in Lebanon for a couple of years mm -hmm. on establishing what is called local conflict mitigation mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And we did, I think, a very nice job. Uh, but then I started realizing with time that this cannot be done with a UN hat. Mm -hmm. I thought that this should be done with a local hat. And uh, my, my small uh, analogy for that was that um, the, uh, any UN agency, in my mind, is like a huge uh, truck. And we need that in order to deliver a, a big amount of, let's say, products or services at times uh, to a certain place. But then sometimes if you want to go to places, say like you're going to go to the countryside or to rural areas, then you need maybe a, a 4x4 Jeep. That's the INGO. Mm -hmm. 
And then if at some point you want to go deep into the actual, you know, rural spaces and areas with those very small paths and so on, you probably need needed, I used to say it back then, a Peugeot 206, a Peugeot 206 plus, the one that I had, which is a very small, modest car mm -hmm. that can actually be driven in those small uh, mm -hmm. paths and then reach people without necessarily creating too much commotion and the attention and so on. Mm -hmm. I thought it would have been very um, disturbing to drive, let's say, into a village and offer them the possibility to work on their conflicts by providing them, let's say, seed fund of ten to $20,000 while you're driving a 50,000-plus armored vehicle. I mean, by armored, I mean a civilian, mm -hmm. but, you know, armored, tainted glass vehicle. Uh, there was a big paradox there. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is when I started realizing that, yes, uh, certain types of initiatives need to be conducted by, by a UN agency. There's a lot of value for that. Others by an INGO, there's a lot of value for that. But then at some point, there are certain levels that require a local agency. Hence, Peace Labs, an organization that today uh, is interested in facilitating difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, our kind of motto or slogan. Um, but then back then we were referring to ourselves as, uh, you know, facilitating peaceful change that is basically catalyzing that change to happen by working with people for as many years as possible. We believe that our minimum number of years would be three years to five years. And if more, then we would definitely invest in that. But realistically speaking, there are very few, if not even any donors who are willing to make that investment and leap of faith with us, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, so hence, uh, that was, I think, the main thing, uh, being able to reach those communities. And most, most importantly, we called it a lab so that we're able to experiment with people, not on people. We are part of the experimentation. But then the idea was to try things out and learn from it and uh, you know give back to the community what is working and what is not but also give back to the body of knowledge of this new and nascent field that is called peace and conflict studies mm -hmm. I like the metaphor um, I'll press you a little bit on that because the metaphor of the large truck crashing through a small rural village is a, is a vivid one <laughs> What sort of incompatibilities or uh, inabilities to navigate the terrain are we talking about here? When you say that there is a, a need for something that's more agile, that uh, is more suited to the local terrain, I mean, what specifically did you have in mind? That, or what experiences led you to think, okay, this is not the right sort of fit for the, the job at hand? Well, I mean, I think there must be more than a hundred uh, reasons, you know, to, to consider this. I'll just, I'm just going to mention two, not 200, just two. <laughs> don't have the time for 200. I would say expectations. You know, when you, you know, when you go into uh, certain communities, um, wearing certain type of clothes or, you know, acting in a certain way or representing a certain agency, people will start building expectations. They might not even discuss those expectations with you, but they already have it. They're lingering in the background of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Even no matter how much you will tell them that, no, please, you know, the ceiling for your expectations should be ABC, they will still be hopeful that something else is going to come out of that. Mm. The number two, I would say, um, you know... Um, kind of challenge is basically the reachability somehow and uh, being able to reach those communities um, we do know that INGOs and UN uh, agencies they have you know I think a lot of clear um, procedures when and security protocols when it comes to going to mm -hmm. to distant and remote areas so, you know, especially outside of the of the capital and in that case we used to struggle a lot because we needed to have security clearances one week ahead of time and we had to cancel many of, of our trips, which led to obviously feelings of frustration mm -hmm. by the communities because whenever we don't go there, they know that we are worried or afraid, but then but they live there and they know in most of the cases that there is no real ground for that you know, worry. Um, so this is when we realized that, no, we needed to, ha to have access to a car and be able to just, you know, turn on the engine and move anytime we want. Of course, we would always uh, connect and 
cross-check with the community members as well. I mean, they, they would know. I mean, uh, if they, their security is on the line, we know for a fact that we can trust them to tell us that, no, don't come today because we are worried that something may happen. And we do know that, you know, in most of the cases, when they know that it's safe, they will make sure to actually, uh, you know, ask us to come. And if something happens while we are there, we also know for a fact that there's no person on earth who can actually protect us except them because we know that they will do the maximum and more to, to protect us before they protect their loved ones because of the the code because of the code of the rural villages in this part of the world where hospitality and the protection of somebody who's from outside that mm. community comes first before anything else mm. has the has your thinking changed over it's been what seven eight years mm. um, was your idea at the beginning still the same idea now or has it shifted over time I think the the disease has worsened <laughs> I'm afraid the disease has has worsened um, chances that people who are doing this type of work would lose hope at some point or lose energy is very high mm -hmm. true I may have lost hope at some point maybe not really lost hope but at least had my hope a little bit de destabilized perhaps but um, my hope my greater hope for a better humanity and better planet and better better communities is ever growing in fact so my my direct answer to this question is going to be very clear it's my hope is growing and my ambition and my genuine beliefs that we can and we will do something uh, great when it comes to preventing wars, preventing violence and becoming uh, more advanced as a, as a species in terms of protecting, uh, you know, uh, pr protecting all living creatures, not, not just humans in, in that sense is something that we can definitely reach and that is somehow inevitable as well. That's mm -hmm. the, the, the labs aspect of things. Um, as you've experimented with people over time, uh, has the underlying model evolved or is it still roughly the same approach facilitating difficult conversations now as it was uh, at the beginning or at least in the first few years purists is the word that uh, eventually uh, was uh, channeled to us from one uh, donor agency donor agencies of, I would say capital uh, that basically they, they told us that uh, very few organizations are willing to take that type of risk and stay, you know, uh, focused on one particular aspect mm -hmm. of work and not over-diversify in order to protect their actual existence. We did not and we still do not care about our actual existence. We only care about the quality of our contribution. Mm -hmm. It could be for one month, it could be for one day, or it could be for 200 years. This is irrelevant as long as what we contribute to is... Uh, of quality and, and relevance. Now, when it comes to, to this field, as I mentioned earlier, it's very nascent. It's, uh, we've, there's little that we know. Uh, there's a lot that we know about war technologies. There's very little that we know today still about peace technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not comparing peace and war because they're not the same. And I think one of the new technologies for us is that peace is not the, the difference of war. So it's something more. It's, it is this and way, way more. It's the existence, not just the inexistence of war. It's also the existence of a lot of prerequisites that will eventually help prevent uh, wars and many violent uh, manifestations of, of uh, different types of conflict. So um, well, the only thing that we did was that we flexed a little bit. We had to flex at some point, mm -hmm. but we did not uh, go haywire and start you know, just doing almost anything that was thrown at us. No, mm -hmm. We said no to way more projects then you know we said yes and uh, the only thing that we did was that we stretched from uh, saying that you know we catalyze peaceful change and by only working let's say with rural communities and and refugees to uh, to a slightly broader i would say slogan that is 
facilitating difficult conversation. This would help us continue working on the same path, that is, working with people, identify the problem, mm-hmm. uh, work on a device a, a, and engineer a process to that is inclusive to work with people towards you know finding potential solutions, potential options that can. Uh, help in gearing them away and steering them away from a potential, uh, you know, uh, well, let's say violence or potential harm. Um, and we felt that this can be done with almost every single human on this globe, every single syndicate, uh, uh, parliament, political party, classroom, uh, you know, ministry, bank, whatever that is. So this is what we believe in. This is the type of life and society, world society that we dream about and we thought that we can easily uh, shift mm. this type of discourse and sell it, promote it, market it in those different uh, aspects of life. The only thing that's going to change is the hats, the hat of the people that we are going to present this on. Hence, in case we would want to change context, we need to also, again, get to know the context on a, on a technical level. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, in terms of the values, the visions, the way to to move to move forward, we tend to think that it's it's pretty much the same. Spend a good amount of time understanding, use a lot of empathy, try to really understand concretely what is happening. Do not assume that you know ever. Always empower people so that they come up with the solution. They will always know more, and always work on the basis of what the people that you're serving know or think they know. Whatever you know is irrelevant. Everything Mm. they think they know or know is what you need to act on. Mm. Where exactly did you grow up? Did did you say north of Tripoli or you were just there temporarily? Uh, I was born in in a city that is northeast of Beirut. It's called uh, Bushriye. And I lived most of my life there, except Mm -hmm. when I traveled uh, to do some work in Kuwait for a couple of years. And then when I did my master's studies in Austria, of course, I did uh, travel every now and then to attend, you know, very short term programs or to do a little bit of work. But I've lived most of my life in that particular city. Have you worked through Pace Labs in that area? Good question. No, I'd love to actually, but uh, it, it almost never happened. No, so I'm not um, that engaged, nor is Peace Labs in terms of that specific. Is that by design or by accident? It's, I, th- I would say it's it's by accident, but at the same time, it's also because um, we, well, maybe a lot of what we do uh, is. Uh, inspired at some point or motivated by the fact that there is some availability of fund resources and interest and um, and this my city being I mean an actual city of, of Beirut of greater Beirut this is how they say it so mm-hmm. because the city is kind of growing um, it, it's not necessarily on the map of the most vulnerable and sensitive mm. uh, you know places probably this city is fifth or sixth uh, in terms of you know being one of those biggest cities in, in Lebanon and so it does receive a lot of resources and so on it does have a lot of conflicts and issues of course I'm not, mm. I'm not denying that but um, not, not that comparable I think to some of the other places where we are working uh, let's say in a given camp or in certain remote areas where conflict can easily escalate uh, into into violence and can sometimes even escalate to becoming uh, or to having repercussions and impact even on the national level as well. Mm. So uh, so yeah, but I would personally love to have the chance to give back to to my to my city, and I know that there's um, there are some thoughts, some ideas that I can always you know provide and propose. But I'm not at this stage very very connected, not even connected at all, you know, to what the municipal council is doing and so on. So mm-hmm. at this stage, my focus is uh, is elsewhere. So leaving leaving there aside, then um, over that experience, what's the what's the most positive experience you've had? I mean, if you had to give someone who is maybe a bit skeptical, uh, not necessarily a success story, but uh, a story, an example to illustrate what it is you're you're trying to do. Uh, what would be your sort of go-to example? What's a what's a way of making this real for people? Well, 
if you've asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have definitely said that I have no story to tell. Mm -hmm. I would say today that um, there are a couple of stories and I would like to think that there's maybe a couple of hundred stories that I'm not even familiar with, that I don't even know of. Mm -hmm. um, this is coming from the fact that once we believe in something and we act on it and we embody its values in our day-to-day -day work and life, mm -hmm. we start mirroring and reflecting that and people around us get inspired. However, maybe 1% of them, maybe even less, would ever consider coming back, knocking at your door and saying, hello, I just wanted to say thank you because you've inspired me. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, our culture is not that type of culture that people would share uh, that like openly express a certain gratitude. Some people do, of course, but it's not that common. It's mostly what's common is that people will never say that. They will probably say few things that are not that positive about you or about what you did, but not not the positive ones. Now, so this, this is this is number one. So I'm very much uh, convinced. That we all inspire people, and mostly those people who whom we don't even know. Uh, as for the people that I may have inspired, or you know, the, the, those positive uh, stories in a way, I'll start by sharing my own story. I think that I've ended up inspiring my own self. Sometimes when we act upon a certain belief and we and we give it a shape, peace labs, we give it a shape, a workshop, we give it a shape, our own self, our own thoughts, words, how we deal with people, how we try to understand things, and so on. This is in itself, I think, for me, uh, if, if I haven't inspired anyone, that makes me a very happy person. Mm -hmm. As to people that I've only realized with time that something that I may have done, said, in, in the past, you know, um, gave them something, a value, an added value. I've had people, uh, you know, reaching out at some point and, uh, or when I would meet them, like in the, later on, a few years later on, they come and say, thank you. Now I know what you were trying to tell us mm -hmm. about the importance of working on our own self and getting by some of our own grievances because they will only kill us from inside. They will only make things even worse. Um, in, in one of the, uh, in one of the actual, uh, uh, workshops that we were conducting with Iraqis. Uh, one Iraqi uh, person uh, shared with us that when he came to Lebanon to attend a certain workshop, he was planning. He was planning to go back to Iraq and kill two people. And those two people were the people who actually kidnapped him mm -hmm. at some point and beat him. Mm. Uh, they were veiled. They had, uh, they covered their, their faces when this happened, but he was able, still able to recognize them. He was planning to buy a Kalashnikov and he was just trying to figure out a way to, to do this. Mm -hmm. He was determined. After the, that workshop that he attended, he stood up and surprisingly he told us the story. He said that, before coming here, this is what I wanted to do. But now, I just realized that I'm a graphic designer. This is what I want to do for life. And this is how I want to express myself. I'm not a killer. Mm. I know who those people are, but killing them is not going to change things. It's going to only make them worse. Mm. So I'm not going to do that. Mm. So, I mean, th these, these are, you know, some of those moments that you start realizing that although I never knew this guy's story, you never know those people's stories, usually, but then there's a certain inspiration that happens. Other people may have been inspired similarly, but may not have felt comfortable enough necessarily sharing, sharing that with, with them. Also, uh, sometimes you get to see that a certain youngster grew up later on to becoming a peace builder and started his or her initiative and so on and so forth. Does that mean that I necessarily am the one to give credit to? I don't want to be given any credit. Mm. Uh, just seeing that there are other people nowadays who are doing this, who are trying to look at the world from some of the lenses that I'm also 
trying to see the world through is already in, in my mind a, a sign of, of success it's so hard to attribute things to what you do uh, so that's why I just I'd rather keep on uh, you know just hoping that that some of what I'm doing is sending a certain you know signal to to others a certain signal of uh, of uh, I don't know like a, a type of reassurance that the same reassurance that I received back in Austria that I was on a good path that others are also going there even though it was not and still is not a known profession a peace builder is not something that people you know consider becoming usually it's usually an engineer right or a doctor or a, or, a, or a lawyer or something like that but um, it just it, it makes me feel very reassured myself that I'm able to provide that model to others the same way other Lebanese provided that model for me as well and others all over the world well conversely Um, what was the hardest or most difficult part of that eight-year now uh, journey? Uh, well, I would say that now it's about, I would say, 12, because in 2006, oh, right? So, but uh, maybe, maybe professionally, it's, I would say, uh, it's about 10 years because I came back to Lebanon in 2006. Eight early 2008 and started doing work since since then sure. I would say that the most difficult part was uh, yeah feeling reassured myself that I'm, I'm onto something mm. um, and and I think the hardest thing one of the hardest things was to connect to at least a couple of friends mm. uh, who genuinely believe in that and that you're able to derive a certain sense of security by talking to them and not having to explain yourself. So when I was in Austria and I was doing my researches and so on, I realized back then that my first challenge would be to, to, to find, again, another tribe, similar tribe, but here in Lebanon. And it took me some time to connect to, to that tribe, but now I feel safe and secure. I'm part of an actual pack. Mm -hmm. I'm part of a of an actual tribe of peace builders, people whose work I trust. Sometimes I may I may not see things the way they do, but I'm safe enough that because the values that pe those people have, uh, the world that they dream about, their worldviews, right, how they perceive the other, and so on, are very similar to how I would also like to conduct myself and and to, to see the world as well. So I think that was potentially you know a, a, a major challenge uh, not feel not to feel too alone in that mm. in that path because anyone who would feel too alone for a too long period of time will probably let go and leave the other thing was that how can i actually live in a country where most people are super agitated frustrated furious driving like crazy highly stressed and so on we don't blame them right because you know this is what this type of, of, a, of, a, of a country or city eventually pushes people to, to be and, and become. And mind you, most of those people have been through war. Um, was basically how to immune myself, how, how not to become like that. If I want to model a certain stance vis-a-vis -vis life, I, I, cannot, I cannot act in an opposite fashion. This, it took me a lot of time and then I started realizing again and again that peace does start from within. We cannot export something that we haven't grown within our own uh, house and by that I mean our own self. Um, and, uh, and, and I know today because uh, one of the, the questions that people ask me is what is the most important project you've ever managed? And my answer is very clear. It's my own self. Yeah. One of the other questions that I'm asking everybody with the hope that we'll grow into something interesting. Uh, if you were to recommend a book that has been, or a couple if you want, that's been very influential and helpful for you, um, you know, over the, the course of your, of your career or your life, uh, what would that be in whatever language, I guess, although English would be helpful. <laughs> Well, I would say that uh, every couple of years, I think there's a book that comes along and makes a, a nice impact. Mm -hmm. In 2004, I was given a book by a, an Indian colleague of mine, mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, when I was in, I mean, obviously we were teaching together there in Kuwait and the book is called Oh Mind, Please Relax. It's by some Indian Swami, I don't even remember the name of that person who wrote it. But I read the book and the book taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about, you know, being self-reflective, about, you know, being critical about things, about not taking things just the way they are. And the language of it, I think, was soft, was nice, logical, and it made a lot of sense to me and it helped me relax a little bit at least. Mm -hmm. I would say that uh, also at some point The Alchemist is was, uh, uh, you know, one nice book mm -hmm. uh, with all the, you know, the sim simplistic philosophies that it had. It, uh, it, it uh, kind of touched me. It kind of, mm -hmm. you know, gave me a certain boussole, a, a compass mm -hmm. uh, as well. It helped me a lot, helped me keep dreaming uh, as well. Um, at some point, there's this book called, uh, well, it's actually a book slash kind of a personality test. Or, but basically, it's a book that talks about the, you know, those five key talents that get uh, hardwired within us at the, an early stage of, of childhood, you know, maybe at the age of between zero to three years. These are the, the, the core hard wirings that actually happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the book kind of, you know, shares all of these talents and then there's a test and then I did the test and I realized that, you know, that I probably score high on five main talents. This is Clifton Strength, that one? Uh, no, I think by Gallup management. Anyways, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, you, you should entrust those tasks like blind, blindly and so on. But, and then we know that we have other uh, core competencies and, and the talents as well. But those files were, were quite interesting for me to, to, to come across. And I started observing and trying to see, you know, to what extent this is true or not. And um, to, to a, a very big extent, it does seem that those talents do guide most of my own, a lot of my behaviors and, and I mean, tendencies and so on. Um, it does seem that I am interested in mirrors, not in books. I think in books that help me get to know myself a little bit more. And I do know that there's a lot of uh, uh, powers that uh, are not uh, unlocked until something happens or as, until a certain reflection, you know, takes place. This is why I'll add something to your question that is not only books, but also people. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm the type of people who gets also inspired by others and I'm learning to become inspired by every single person that I meet which is actually happening Johann Galton was definitely an inspiring person uh, for sure Hannes Siebert is um, this uh, international mediator he's been doing some work in Lebanon I hope you get the chance to meet this guy he's extremely interesting uh, and I f do sense that I get, got a certain unsolicited uh, but very much welcomed and wanted mentoring from from his from himself, and that was I think very generous and kind of him. Mm -hmm. um, at an earlier stage, uh, Robert Rivers, uh, he was one of those um, uh, lecturers who came to to the Austrian University and provided a one full week training on uh, how to facilitate a workshop with youth. Mm -hmm. This is when I realized that. I like this guy. Actually, I probably can become that person. I can be fun, engaging, but also deliver very serious messages as well. We don't need to be too, you know, uh, serious. We can still play and jump and do things, but then eventually great learning moments can still be reached and, and, and be done. Um, I think the list goes on and on and on, but um, I think it's extremely important to meet, whether in a book or in real life, the person whom we would like to, to become. And I think I've got the actual privilege of, of, of having that. Mm. So I think this in itself is really, really wonderful. But I would want to mention one last book. It's actually a movie that I've used in some of my courses at AUB on, on conflict transformation. I give very short-term courses, intensive ones. And I've used a book called uh, Ender's Game. It's basically, mm -hmm. and it's a movie actually. And it's about this kid who is asked to lead uh, the international fleet against yeah. the invaders and so on. And then uh, when it comes to leadership, when it comes to right and wrong, ethical questions that people should ask themselves in when they go to war um, and, uh, you know, how to lead others, how to read, how to, you know, how to understand things, how to understand patterns and so on. I think this is maybe the type of, you know, the, the, the persona, the profile of the the new generation peace builders that we would actually want to have. Uh, he says, I have a problem. And the problem, according to him, 12-year-old kid, basically, was that he had 
a lot of empathy and compassion to his enemies. But the problem, according to him, was that because of that, he knew them too much and so much that he was able to to uh, to love them. Mm-hmm. But then at that stage, he was asked to destroy them, and hence the actual dilemma. Uh, at that particular stage, we love the person because we see the pain and agonies and and real humanity. But then at the same time, we're so you know. Uh, we get so smart and knowledgeable that we can destroy that person because we know all of that person's mm-hmm. vulnerabilities and, and weak points. And uh, and that was, I think, the main question. What do I do? Do I love, protect, or do I destroy my, my enemy and make sure that the enemy will never rise again? And again, I do think that uh, we need a new peace-building generation. We need new mentalities and we need peace leaderships in the in the Arab world but maybe before we talk about peace leaderships we need leaders for hope those who will smile while talking they will not be frowning those who will love mm-hmm. those who will not engage in actual fighting when it comes to discussing things but will go always you know into any conversation with an open heart and with an open mind I was going to ask if you had anything you wanted to add but I just you've, did. you've wrapped up <laughs> You have summarized yourself very well there, I think. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.